0: Yeah, so when I think about sales and marketing spend, the first word that comes to mind is inefficient.
1: Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer, a member of OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, We're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. But this won't just be a podcast about numbers. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks. This season will also be interactive. You can help us improve our SaaS benchmarks by participating in the 2018 SaaS Benchmark Survey. Visit openview.vc forward slash 2018 benchmarks to learn more and find last year's results. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about sales and marketing spend, how growing software companies should be spending their budget, and how they can be more efficient. I'm joined by Liz Kane, a partner at OpenView, and Dave Gro, president and COO of Lucidchart. Liz, at this point, you've reached best friend of the podcast status, having appeared on season one and now season two. Thanks for coming on again. Glad we didn't scare you off. And and you're even bringing your own wine to the podcast. So, you know, we're really getting comfortable here.
0: What you get when you get Friday afternoon podcast recordings.
1: (laughs) So now we're here to talk about sales and marketing spend. You're, of course, no stranger to this topic. What makes you so passionate about this?
0: Yeah, so when I think about sales and marketing spend, the first word that comes to mind is inefficient. And I think that's something that like I strive to fix regardless of like the company or the area of the business we're working on. But so many companies pour money into their go-to-market engine at the top of the funnel trying to generate new leads and don't think about ways they can optimize what they already have in place. And so much of, you know, the inefficiency that comes out of sales and marketing spend is related to other things, whether that's like enablement for sales reps or customer churn or opportunities to grow customers that are missed. I think there's just a lot of places where people can be much more efficient
1: in how they spend a dollar. Totally. And you wrote an article recently called The Pivotal Step from Benchmarks to Action, which you mentioned that benchmarks themselves, you know, everyone loves benchmarks. People read all the latest benchmarks But benchmarks are only half the battle. What inspired you to write that?
0: We get asked for data all the time, whether it's from our portfolio or from other board members within our portfolio or prospects. I think people are always looking to understand how should they benchmark their own business and how do they know how they're doing? Benchmarks are kind of funny in that way. Like, you know, you can gather data from hundreds of companies. We've done that in our most recent survey. You get really interesting information, but some of the context is always missing. And it's really hard to compare a company to this broader group and actually have really actionable insights coming out of it. I think my struggle with benchmarks is that every company wants to be best in breed, but they aren't thinking about how to take the incremental steps and how to take action along the way to like actually start getting there. And it doesn't happen overnight. You don't go from, you know, an NPS of 20 to 60 or cut your CAC in half overnight. Like you need to just start doing and actually moving to the point of implementing change and actually executing. And I think people just get really hung up on benchmarks and the guidelines rather than actually experimenting and making changes to their own business.
1: Totally. And there's an old adage out there, everyone knows this, like half the money you spend on marketing is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. So when a company looks at their benchmark, sees that they might be underperforming, or even just they try to think about even if they're overperforming, how could they improve? How do they figure out where they're wasting their money?
0: God, if I knew that, I think we'd all be rich. No, like, kidding aside, though, it is really, really hard to figure out marketing attribution. People do it in different ways, whether it's first touch, last touch, multi-touch, even weighted. I don't think there's a right answer. I think what's really important is actually to start measuring and to compare over time and make these small changes so you can actually experiment and see what improves. You know, I, I can give you an example. We were working with a company recently, and actually encourage them to implement Last Touch Attribution, just to start seeing what was having an impact on deals closing. A really short sales cycle, Last Touch was actually a really good indicator for that business of what was influencing deals to actually accelerate in the pipeline and move through, you know, a short kind of two-week sales cycle. And what they found was actually that a lot of the channels that they were spending money on weren't driving the leads through to that actual close. And some of the areas where they had been underspending historically were actually engaging hotter buyers. And I think they probably wouldn't have seen that unless they had a consistent measurement that they could track along the way. So, you know, I don't know whether that's last touch or first touch for most businesses, or whether you can kind of reliably find something with a weighted attribution, but I think most companies are failing to even track anything. So that's just sort of the first step. If
1: you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Exactly. (laughs) Very fair. And, you know, You've been highly successful. You scaled NetSuite's business development team from zero to not 10, not 20, but 170 people worldwide, and you became a general partner in a venture capital firm at a young age. But what's the top mistake that you've made, especially when it comes to wasting some of your sales and marketing budget?
0: Yeah, top mistakes, it all comes back to people for me, and it's really in sort of the the hiring realm. So I think you probably heard some of the stats around turnover and how expensive it is to have to hire somebody new for a role. So I think the first mistake is making the wrong hire. So rushing into a decision, pulling the trigger on someone because you're sort of desperate in the moment to fill a role and not really focusing on getting the right person in place. And then potentially like more damaging is how long you let that person hang around. So when I think about like the biggest mistake I made, it was actually over-investing in an underperformer, somebody in a management role who really wasn't the right fit. And that was pretty clear in the first like 30 days. And instead of making that quick decision, which I think honestly would have been better for that individual, for our broader team, and for me, I poured my time and energy and resources into trying to take this person who was just not the right fit, and bring them up to speed and help them actually acclimate. And the reality was, We had a low performer who had a pretty bad attitude, and it was a drag on the entire team. And I saw that impact really trickle down to the BDRs. So the people that were working for them were demotivated. Their performance went down. And honestly, having had taken another 60 days to fill that role probably would have been worth it and what we were able to make up in leads. So I think it's that hiring and firing decisions. They're really hard. It's people. And, like, you don't want to do it wrong, obviously. It's some of the toughest decisions you make and some of the easiest ways to waste
1: dollars in sales. Everyone is looking at their glass door rating. They want to be a culture that people want to work at. How do you fire people when they're, you know, when they're wrong fit, but how do you do that in a way that doesn't hurt the, the brand and the company?
0: Yeah, I think it's being really human. In almost every case that I can recall, I found that it was actually the right decision on both sides. Generally, when someone's underperforming, they're probably not in the right job. And that takes two people. You probably made a bad hire or put somebody in a position where they couldn't succeed. It's not a, that it's a bad person. It's that the fit isn't right. So I think everybody being really honest with themselves, treating each other with respect, being adults about the situation, and then being you know careful about helping that person to find the right next step, helping them realize what their strengths are, what they can be great at. I think that's like a really important part of being a manager and actually a leader and figuring out how you can help people develop, whether that's with you or not.
1: Right. It's about having empathy. And, you know, that actually reminds me, so you're very generous with your time, but you have a lot of requests and, you know, I'm sure everyone in a leadership position is pulled in lots of different directions. And so you wrote an article recently called The Evolution of No, where you say that no is a powerful word and we learn to say no at a very young age. I think you even had an example of a, you know, two-year-old saying no to No everything. no no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, why is it so hard to apply the word no correctly to our work lives? So first off, we're very glad you didn't say no to coming <laughs> back on the podcast. But more seriously, how did you learn how to say no? And when's the right time to say no?
0: Yeah, I mean I don't think I've mastered it yet, but it's definitely something I'm constantly working on. Being really relentless and prioritizing kind of what's most important to you or to the people around you and figuring out where you can have the highest impact is probably the biggest lever. When I think about saying no now, it's, you know, in a couple of contexts. One is, you're right, you have limited time that you can actually give. So where does that have the biggest impact? And today, as I think about it, there's sort of our portfolio. There's our internal, you know, people and human capital and operations, And there's also, you know, your personal life to consider and splitting your time between work and home and friends and family and making sure that you're actually kind of giving everybody your whole self. So I think about no, I try to minimize time where there are meetings where we're not making a decision, where we don't have a clear agenda, making sure that it can't get done faster or an email, that it actually like requires a discussion and interaction. And sometimes I probably go too far on that spectrum and sometimes you got to pull it back. But I think it's something to constantly consider and figure out if you're actually prioritizing the right activities. So I don't think there's like a quick or clean answer to that, but I think it's something everybody's got to be thinking about pretty regularly.
1: Well, I think that underpins being efficient with your sales and marketing spend, Mm -hmm. too, because if you're good at prioritizing your time and where you're focusing, you're going to reduce a lot of that waste. Totally. And you know, another trend that I know we've talked about and you've written about is this rise in product-led growth, where the product is at the front and center of how a company lands and expands their customers. And companies that have adopted this kind of product-led model can cut their sales and marketing spend pretty dramatically. I mean, we've even seen companies mm-hmm. with a one-month CAC payback. Since they don't need to be hiring armies of expensive sales rep and the product essentially sells itself, What are some examples of companies that have successfully embraced this model?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of great examples in our portfolio. Companies like Calendly or Expensify, even Deputy or Logical is starting to see that kind of flywheel growth where there's a natural network and virality within the product. I think you're actually calling out the right thing there, which is while you can dramatically cut down on sales and marketing spend, it's actually really important that you apply that human effort in the right way so that you're actually figuring out what levers you can pull to have impact. And at times, that may mean doing work to better understand your use case or who you should be targeting so that you know your marketing is pointed at the right users and bringing the right people in. At times, that's more about customer success and automating as much as you can in the onboarding. And at times, that may mean actually including a human in the process. So if you have some larger customers that are coming in, maybe you need to augment that onboarding experience or provide more end user training or a personal touch within the mix. I think Expensify has done a particularly great job of that. David Barrett was in a couple of weeks ago and was sharing with us some of the ways in which they've automated and added leverage to their support team and created sort of almost layers of review to ensure that people are interacting with the end customer in the best possible way and getting the fastest answer they can.
1: So in a product led company, sales might not be sales. It might be customer success or support or you know, at this different role.
0: Yeah, really just how you're interacting with that end customer, right? It's all about helping them have a great experience so that they do spend more money. And I think in a product led business in particular, every touch point with the customer needs to provide this unbelievable experience. So they refer it to someone else. So they continue to use your product more actively. So they bring in somebody else within the company. All of those touch points actually are revenue and sales in a product-led business.
1: Since you're here, I feel like I have to ask you this question. You've obviously spent a lot of time working with companies on building and optimizing their outbound lead gen teams. Why is that so important to you? Why do you spend so much of your time working on that?
0: You know, it's something I sort of fell into early on. When I was at NetSuite, I was actually in an account management role. And so I was leading an account management group, managing one of the subsidiaries, renewals and upsell into the install base. And then we found that we were actually really successful in hiring people into that role from the outside and getting them up to speed quickly. And what that came down to was, you know, hiring for skill and talent over experience and really developing great training around both sales process and the product and helping people be an advocate for the customer. And as I dug into really what that meant, I realized it could be applied to a lot of different things. But I think one of the most underserved areas is lead gen and BDRs, often people with very limited experience who get very limited training. They're almost an afterthought of the sales team. And they're just sort of expected that that job's easy. And the reality is it's like one of the hardest jobs you can do. You sign up for kind of endless cold calls, reaching out to people who like admittedly don't want to talk to you, trying to break through. We've all
1: seen the BDR shaming on LinkedIn.
0: And I think if you like if you've done that job, like you know how hard the day is and like you're kind of like signing up to hear no and be hung up on a lot. And so when I think about spending my time there, it's about actually like providing, I think, a better experience for those BDRs because we all have had our first job and there is a role to pay it forward. Someone taught you how to do what you know how to do today and you were put in a position where you had an opportunity to learn and grow. And I think, you know, a lot of the BDRs I've worked with, all of the BDRs I've worked with have really unbelievable potential and need to be given a chance to go actually show that.
1: What companies are really nailing their approach to outbound?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of companies. I mean, I think there's on the, you know, like kind of the the high end, there's plenty of large companies that have built out like really strong outbound models. You know, the sales forces, Microsoft's, Oracle's of the world. And then there's like the up and coming companies. A recent acquisition we actually started to hear about this week was a company MuleSoft who built an unbelievable outbound team and the culture they've created and sort of the buzz and the hiring they've been able to do um, have been really exceptional. I also talk about Zora really regularly. They're a team, they have a leader who has built a great culture around embracing outbound and building a really strong, it's a mix between automation and like the human aspect again. And I think I keep bringing up that word. I think one of the mistakes I particularly see is when people over automate that outbound process and don't allow people to connect with an individual or do the research. It's that sort of like spray and pray approach where they just try to reach out to like everybody they can with a generic message versus connecting with the few really great people who are the most likely targets for their product. As I look across, like, kind of the messaging and the culture, and you said it, like some of the BDR shaming on LinkedIn, you see the companies that stand out who have done a great job of hiring and promoting and building a culture where BDRs coming in can be successful and outbound and actually grow and graduate into future roles.
1: We've covered a lot of ground today. If I were to summarize what I heard from you, it's sort of all about getting the data so that you can, if you don't have the data, you can't optimize anything, prioritizing to focus on the most impactful things, and then just being human, being empathetic, whether that's how you treat your people or how you, how you scale your teams. Thank you. Thank you. We had some really great takeaways from Liz. First and foremost, sales and marketing will be inefficient. The trick is constantly monitoring what's working and what's not working and constantly improving your funnel. Now we get to hear from Dave Groh, president and COO of Lucidchart, about how they scaled to 10 million users while being bootstrapped. Even after Lucidchart did take funding, they were so efficient, they didn't need to spend it. Today, we'll learn how. Our next guest is Dave Groh from Lucidchart. We're so grateful to have him on the podcast. And today's episode is about sales and marketing spending, how much companies should be spending, how they can be more efficient. And Lucidchart is an amazing poster child for efficient growth. They've reached millions of users without taking outside funding. And even after raising a big round, they haven't needed to touch any of it. Before we jump into the topic, Dave, how did you get started in the world of SaaS?
2: Yeah, I actually got started with SaaS back when I was still in school. Uh, Around 2007 or so, I had an idea for a relatively niche product. And ended up raising a small, what I would now call a pre-seed round. Long story short, ended up running out of money before we really had a viable business. And at that point, I recognized that maybe I wasn't quite ready to build a business from scratch. And so I opted to go work for a big consulting firm, Bain & Company, where I hoped to really sort of solidify my business fundamentals before trying my hand again at entrepreneurship. And I'd been there a few years, and it was a great experience. But I got a call from Carl, Charts CEO, with a pitch to join himself and Ben, his co-founder and our CTO. And the pitch was pretty compelling, right? Essentially, he said, we've got a great product, but we need someone to come focus and figure out and grow the business. So I uprooted the family, moved to Provo, Utah, and started working with them in the basement.
1: That sounds like an incredible opportunity that would be hard to turn down. And you know, for those who aren't familiar, could you actually share a bit about Lucidchart and what you guys do?
2: Absolutely. So, really, about at Lucidchart, we are about visual communication and visual thinking. And so, you know, in the early days, I think a, a lot of what people would do with a product is, you know, simple flowcharts or diagrams. O- over time, that's expanded to, you know, org charts for HR and sales processes and account maps for sales. Really, what we're trying to do is to help people, again, think and create and communicate and work visually. And that's the gist of Lucidchart.
1: Very cool. And you know, when you joined, it was very early on, as you mentioned, you were operating out of a basement and your mandate was figure out and grow the business. You know, Really broad mandate. What did you tackle first?
2: Yeah, looking back, I don't remember many deep conversations at the time with Carl and Ben about whose responsibility was what, but it was pretty clear to me that they were both intensely focused on making Lucidchart a great product. And so I really dug in on the business side. I mean, my first project was actually... To figure out a pricing model that we were comfortable with. Uh, Carl asked me to do that my first day, and he essentially time-boxed that effort for a few days, which in retrospect for me, I think that was really smart, because pricing is something that you can spend weeks or even months trying to figure out. But at the end of the day, if no one's coming to your website or using the product, pricing doesn't really matter. And I think that gets into what I really focused on. Almost every minute of every day went to how we could drive more users to the top of the funnel. Because again, I realized that it doesn't matter how exceptional your pricing is, or your messaging, or your email nurture campaigns, the rest of the funnel simply doesn't matter unless you've got people coming into the top of it. And so that was my primary focus. Of course, over time, as we started getting more and more users, then I started to spend additional time on other parts of the funnel.
1: Right. Optimizing all the different elements and you know, on the top of the funnel side, so your, the options for growing that top of the funnel, you, know, you could have done just about anything. How did you quickly figure out what would be the best course of action?
2: You know, that's a good question. From the beginning, we, we've always been a, a product-first company. That's the DNA of our founders. It's played into a lot of decisions over the years, particularly in the early days, as revenue would grow a little bit and support some additional investment. That usually came in the form of another engineer who could help accelerate our product vision. So in short, in the early years, we simply didn't have much of a marketing budget, right? My marketing budget consisted of my time and how much I was willing to hustle. And so it was a forcing function, I think, for me to be scrappy and identify the most efficient ways to get Lucidchart in front of a lot of people. And so I, I started experimenting at different places, but ultimately went to something I knew which, a little bit, which was you know, SEO. And so that was initially where I kind of really jumped in again to drive people to that top of the funnel.
1: And what, as you thought about SEO and and trying to find these low cost ways of of acquiring customers, what lessons have you learned over the years?
2: It's a good question. I would say a a few different things. First, focus on what's working. I think there's a very common tendency in the early days to want to do all the things. right? We want to build a holistic marketing plan. We look at companies that are a few years ahead of us, and we see them producing amazing content, distributing it through every channel, putting on user conferences, and and a lot more. And I think we think to ourselves that if they're successful, that's what we need to do to be successful. When in reality, I think the most important thing we can do in the early days is to find one or maybe two channels that really work and have potential to scale, and then double down, triple down on that channel. Spend 80 to 90% of your time on exhausting the opportunity in that channel. So for an example, with SEO at Lucidchart, first I focused on keywords that I recognized as low in the funnel, high purchase intent. These were people searching for things like flowchart software, and they were ready to use and buy the product. Over time, we had content and rankings for all of those keywords. So then began to move further up in the funnel to keywords like flowchart template, and eventually to even higher in the funnel to keywords like what is an org chart? The point being that we are now seven years in, And we still haven't even exhausted the opportunity within that single channel. We've obviously layered on a lot of additional channels over the years. But I think it's really important to focus, particularly early on when you have such limited bandwidth and resources. So I think that would be lesson number one. The second lesson, which I'll mention, is to invest in data that you can trust. Given that SEO was so successful for us, the next logical thing is to start doing some PPC, some AdWords spend. Logic goes, if people are clicking on organic results, registering, paying for Lucidchart, then surely similar users will do the same if we can get more exposure with paid clicks. And at the time, we had built an internal system that was designed to track visitors based on their source and help us understand whether those people registered and so on. And so we began to invest some budget into PPC on keywords that we knew performed well for SEO. And so I watched our internal dashboards day after day, week after week, And the results didn't make a lot of sense, right? No one was paying. So eventually we shut it off. And I went through this exercise two or three more times in the next couple of years. And the results were always the same. Separately, and eventually we decided to buy a third-party analytics platform and plugged it into our system. And a few months later, I tried PPC again. And this time it was wildly profitable for us. And so the problem was never with the channel. It was with our internal analytics system which I later learned had some fatal flaws in it. So a huge lesson there, right? Invest in analytics and accurate data so you can make smart decisions because the lack of that, in our case, cost us, you know, call it two years of growth in what is now a phenomenal channel for us.
1: Great points. And you know, the first lesson that you mentioned was about focus. And I think that's so important for really every group. Product teams, of course, need to be focused because there's so many competing requests. Sales teams need, need to be focused, but, you know, it's much easier to, said, than done, right? How did you keep the team on track without you know, shutting down innovation or new ideas?
2: Focus follows results. And so consistently, from what our two major channels were early, SEO I've mentioned was one. Another one was integrations and partnerships, which can be a key way to sort of ride the coattails of bigger players in the market. And we'd done some integrations with Google and Atlassian, some early ones. And so we basically kind of had SEO going and these integrations. And I think the way we did that was essentially just to lay out the results and the opportunity, right? We knew it was working. We should keep doubling down here and continuing to go. Now, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, I mentioned spending 80 to 90% of, of the time on the channel that you know is working. That means there's 10 to 20% of time left over. And I think that's where a lot of the experimentation, you know, should continue to happen because you don't want to get to the point where you're sort of cresting, you're sort of tapping out that channel without having figured out what the next big one could be. And so again, heavily weight toward where you can drive results and see the immediate impact, but continue to experiment on the side so you can be ready to understand when you're cresting and when you need to sort of layer on that next big thing.
1: That makes total sense. Many software companies have this kind of grow at all costs mentality, right? They want to reach scale faster than all of their peers. And, you know, they're willing to burn as much money as they need to to do that and lucid chart has taken a more careful approach growing you know still quickly but you know more efficiently than others what led you guys down this path of more efficient growth
2: yeah i think there's a couple contributors if i look back first of all we've always felt strongly that we want to be in control of our own destiny we want to always be in a position where we can do right by our employees and our customers So we've never wanted to put ourselves in a position where we're dependent on that next round funding, for example. You know, I look at the market now. We've been in a great bull market for many years now. But it wasn't that long ago when I graduated from college in 2008, right as the Great Recession hit. And at that time, you know, I was lucky to keep my job, but many of my friends weren't as fortunate. And so we hope for the best here at Lucidchart, but have a plan to weather storms that may come in the future. And I think that's played into it quite a bit. Next, the second reason I'd say, just to be totally candid, many people, including investors, are just now waking up to the opportunity that exists with what we're building. Right? We've had plenty of opportunities to raise money over time. But in the early days, there was a lot of skepticism about the size of the market we were building for. People look at Lucidchart and may think, okay, flowcharting, diagramming, you know that's a nice niche market, when in reality, what we're doing is so much more than that. We're helping people work visually. If you think about the tools that we generally use to communicate in the workplace, email, Word, Google Docs, Slack, they're mostly text-based, but we don't think and ideate just in words. We often think visually. And so there's this need that every knowledge worker in the world has, and it's why we've been able to attract 10 million users, but why we're also just getting started. So with every year that passes, with every million users that sign up, with every six-figure contract we land, people are no longer saying that's a niche market, right? They're starting to recognize it for what it is. So all that's to say that capital is much more readily available to us today than it ever has been. But the lack of understanding externally of the size of the opportunity for Lucidchart, you probably contributed to us choosing and sort of some ways being forced to be capital efficient in the past. You've certainly
1: proven the small market concern to be totally <laughs> inaccurate. Have you ever felt pressure to be spending more to grow even faster?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say pressure per se. We've got very supportive investors, for example, who appreciate how capital efficient we've been as we have scaled. That said, it's a conversation, a very active conversation we continue to have, primarily internally. Right? We have a very ambitious vision that I just described. We don't see any reason why there should be more people using a spreadsheet, for example, than Lucidchart. And so if we find the right opportunities to double down in certain areas to accelerate our path to that vision, we're certainly open to it as long as it comes back to something I mentioned earlier. Right? We want to be in control of our destiny, and we always want to remain confident that we can do right by our customers and our employees. And so if we can accomplish those things and move faster to our vision, then I think it's a balance that we always try to figure out.
1: And, you know, one of those big bets that, you know, you guys have been making, at least it looks like from the outside is this move more into the enterprise and you see that you claim adoption at 96% of the Fortune 500, but also you have this really capital efficient freemium model. And, you know, I'm curious, how did that shift to the enterprise change the way you think about, you know, you go to market engine and, and how you allocate that sales and marketing budget?
2: In some ways, more than a shift, it's probably best described as really layering on additional capabilities, right? Our freemium and self-serve engine is stronger today than it's ever been and continues to be a powerful growth lever for us. But over time, starting several years ago, we've layered on and really integrated with the self-serve this inside sales capability which has put Lucidchart on a fundamentally different trajectory than it previously was. And now we're layering on deeper enterprise or direct sales capabilities, which again is positioning the company to be on an entirely new trajectory. Right. This is the process that a lot of great companies, Zendesk, Dropbox, SurveyMonkey, Smartsheet, have gone through over time. That said, it's not easy to build and layer on these additional capabilities. If you think about for the first few years, everything we did was focused on the freemium self serve approach who we hired, what we built for the product, how we marketed, and so on. And so to make the shift or transition successful, literally every part of the company had to change, every part. We were now hiring for sales roles now, which we never had previously, and trying to learn and understand what makes a successful sales professional in our company and with this hybrid business model. We were building product functionality now for administrators and enterprise security features so that we could sell successfully to an organization, not just an individual. And it was no longer just about driving more people to the top of the funnel and putting them through a frictionless self-serve nurture campaign. We had to help identify who were the key decision makers at organizations and deliver a value prop to them, which may well be different than for the end user. So it's been fascinating to be a part of, because Lucidchart is fundamentally a different product and company than we were just a few years ago, because of how we've layered on so many new capabilities over time. And to your prior question, you know I think you're right that this certainly plays into it. Building a large freemium base can be done pretty scalably, and the number of users and revenue doesn't necessarily tie to the number of employees and things of that nature. As you go more into a sales, uh, a customer success world, there do start to be more ties and relations to your revenue growth and the number of people involved, and so it can become a more high touch and and more expensive endeavor. But for us, certainly the right one to make over time.
1: It's super interesting because you know this is really difficult to do, right? Of maintain this really solid self service model, not hurt that in any way, but then also serve this new segment of customers and through this, you know, more high touch approach and and layering that together, what gave you the confidence that you were ready to
2: really layer in that enterprise go-to-market component? I would say we were pulled into that market in many ways. You know, over the first few years from time to time, we would get a large inbound request from a company who wanted to roll it out broadly. And one of us on the executive team would sort of shepherd that through the process. But this was starting to happen at a really increasing rate right? People were no longer just talking to us about five users or even 50 users. They were talking about hundreds or even thousands of users at their company that they wanted to roll this out to. And so we were feeling this natural pull. We did what we tend to always do. We experimented. We didn't you know, go out and hire 20 people originally. We put one incredibly smart, talented, strategic person against this and said, we think there's an opportunity here, figure it out. And so they started to test. They started to get on the phone with these companies. And very quickly, with almost no pushback, we were closing some of the largest deals that we'd ever experienced at Lucidchart. And so, you know, that confidence came with time. But certainly by experimenting, starting to see proof points gave us the courage to go after it with a lot more vigor.
1: And, you know, you mentioned a few companies already, but I'm curious, what company sales and marketing would you say you most admire and why?
2: Since they've launched, I've always been impressed with Envision, the prototyping application. It was clear from the beginning they really knew their market and they essentially led with brand marketing, which at the time was very different than how we started with somewhat more tactical marketing for us. And so even though I wasn't a designer, I'm about as far as you can get from it, I would watch them put out this great content from the very beginning. Things like interviews with designers at Uber and Netflix and other great companies. And these interviews had nothing to do with their product. It covered topics like what was the design philosophy at those companies and how was the team structured and so on. And they just did a really phenomenal job from the beginning of adding value to the design community and building a really trusted brand. And so I think that's been one of the key reasons they've been so successful over the last few years.
1: Right. Instead of leading with maybe the more efficient kind of SEO style content, leading with stories and brand marketing and really building that rapport with their customer base separate from the product.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think Clearly, both approaches can work and can get to a significant scale, but I think I admired it from afar because of how different it was than the approach that we took to get there.
1: And my final question is one that I'm asking all of our guests. So, you know, you've been extremely successful despite being a recession grad. I'm a recession grad myself, so I know what that's like. And, you know, I've had a host of different roles at Lucidchart. When have you failed and what did you learn from that experience?
2: Well, there's a lot to choose from here. You know, Obviously, I joined Lucid early, and so I started in essentially an individual contributor role. And over time, as the company grew, I had to make that transition from an individual contributor to a manager and hopefully a leader, which are two very different things, obviously. And that that transition isn't easy. It wasn't easy for me. I've seen others struggle with it as well, because often those who are promoted into those management roles are those who really excelled as an individual contributor. I love getting into the details. And so in in those first few months when I was managing my first employee, I really managed him, really micromanaged him because I had done the job. I probably believed that I could do things better still. So it took me a few months to realize that I needed to give him the freedom to really operate his way. And sure, there were still going to be some things that I legitimately could have done better myself, but there were also going to be a lot of things where he would do it far better than I ever could because of his unique experience and perspective. So it was definitely a big failure on my part. I almost drove away a great early employee from Lucidchart as a result, but it's been a hugely valuable lesson uh, as I've continued to scale with the company over the last few years.
1: I think that's great advice. Well, thanks so much for coming on Bill.
2: You bet. Thanks so much, Kyle.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Build. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Please help us improve this data and participate in our 2018 survey. That's actually out now at openview.vc forward slash 2018 dash benchmarks. And outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.